This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Oleg would give me money, and he, of course, would give me cash. And, you know, dealing with the Russians, one of the most difficult questions is, what do you charge? Yeah, I can't go to Indeed and see what other other spies are charging, what the rate is and, and market for geography or location. You know, I, I sort of figured that they had money, but if you ask for too much, they just won't be able to do it, so it's not worth it to them. And if you ask for too little, they'll start to ask questions because I'm there about money, I'm doing this for nothing. That doesn't seem right. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, the bookseller who helped expose a Russian spy, Navid Jamali, worked at his parents' specialty book business, a little company north of New York City, that had among its regular customers one very unusual client. The man would show up from time to time with a shopping list of sensitive reports and manuals he wanted the Jamalis to acquire for him. He described himself as a Russian diplomat assigned to the United Nations. In fact, he was a spy. Jamali hatches a plan to nab the Russian that turns into a three-year odyssey. It would require him to work as an FBI informant and pose as a Russian asset. He begins his story in 1989, the year his parents first met the mysterious Russian. One day, a man just walked into the office, which was in of itself sort of an odd thing, and uh, asked to speak to my father. Um, Father sat down with him, and he introduced himself as... Alex Tomikin, uh, someone who worked with the United Nations. He showed my dad a, a business card that said uh, Soviet mission to the United Nations and took the card back and, and then promptly gave my father a list of books. The books were sort of these boring academic titles on nuclear disarmament, weapons control, things that you know wouldn't really arise suspicion and would seem in line for a diplomat who's uh, assigned to the United Nations. My father made a small joke about, uh, you know, how is arms control going? And the man sort of laughed and said, it keeps me busy. And my father was excited that this is a list of books. You know, you, you have to hustle to get contracts. And here's someone who just literally walked in and wants to do business with him. So he offered to do it and, and said, you know, how should I get the books back to you? And the man said, oh, no, I'll be back in touch. And, and with that, he left. You know, this was a meeting that took maybe 15, 20 minutes at the most. It was a very, very quick meeting. He left, and shortly thereafter, there was uh, two more men who walked in, and this time they identified themselves as FBI special agents and showed my dad a picture of the man who had just been in and said, you know, this is a Soviet intelligence officer. What did he want? My father said he just wanted to buy some books and, um, you know, sort of at this point he had the sense that perhaps something here was amiss and showed the the agents the list of titles and and asked, what do you want me to do? And the men basically said, uh, you know, get him his books. And with that, they were on their way, and they basically just left them with the only direction that if the Soviets came back, uh, the FBI would be in touch. And with that, they left. And so essentially for a decade plus, this relationship went on where the Soviets and then later on the Russians would just ask for reports on radars. I mean, all sorts of things that really skirted the line of 
whether they were illegally allowed to procure it. For the FBI's standpoint, they just were happy to see what the Soviets and the Russians wanted. They were happy to keep tabs on these intelligence officers who were collecting you know, military intelligence on the United States. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a short break, about a year, and now intelligence officers assigned to the Russian missions the United Nations started showing up, GRU officers, asking for the same thing, same relationship. Their approach to this didn't change. They still wanted to carry on with the same relationships. I'm a dot-commer, I'm a Gen Xer, and when I finished New York University in New York, my now wife and I moved to Boston where she was working on her PhD at, at, at Harvard. And I got a job in Harvard University, uh, basically IT. I was working in technology. And when September 11th happened, living in Cambridge, we ended up going back to New York a few days later and walking down to the pile. And those images, that those feelings really, I think, struck a chord for me. So shortly after September 11th, I applied to the Navy. I was going to be an intelligence officer, still living in Boston. And when I didn't get in the first time, we decided to move back to New York. So in 2005, uh, I started working at the Books and Research, the family company, and that's when I came up with this idea of approaching the FBI and, and seeing if my contact through the business, which I'm sure with the Russians would have continued, um, could be used to perhaps help them and, and in turn uh, swear me a letter of recommendation to reapply to the Navy. I'll never forget the first conversation I had with the FBI to discuss this. We met in a Dunkin' Donuts across from 26 Federal Plaza, which is the big federal building in New York City, uh, <laughs> in the sort of hustle and bustle of the lunch crowd. Essentially, I approached the FBI and said, look, I'm going to be working at the family company. I know the Russians come in and I'd be happy to see if I can kick this up and, and you know, perhaps increase the trajectory of this. And I'm looking to apply to the military and, and here's the program and I'm, I'm hoping that maybe if I help you with this, uh, you in turn would consider eventually writing me a letter of recommendation, counting it as sort of this internship, if you will. The FBI's reaction, the two agents that I met with, was uh, <laughs> they didn't seem all too happy. They, they looked at this and said, we have a good thing going, let's not rock the boat. And, and their words were something along the lines of, you don't need to change anything, this is working fine the way it is. Let's not upset the apple cart. And again, I said, okay, I understand, but you know, I'm sure I'm gonna to speak to them and I'd be happy to try something different. And you know, they said, that's fine, but we're not asking you to do this. They made it very clear that they were not asking me to do this, which I later le learned that that was, uh, they weren't ordering me to do this is what they're saying, is they're making sure that this is something I wanna do my own free will and I wasn't being required to do that. So it was a very odd conversation. In fact, sitting there in that Dunkin' Donuts, I remember that uh, there was a, a, a pause in the conversation and I sort of felt that the conversation was over, but no one was moving. And eventually I said, you know, what's going on here? And they said, oh no, we can't leave until you leave. You have to leave first. So that was my first sort of foray into how spy tactics and the art of espionage works. I had to leave first because they could not be seen leaving with me. I'd grown up hearing stories about the, the Soviets and how suave and how worldly they were and how well they spoke English. And that was the exact opposite of the man who would eventually become my Russian case officer, a man named Oleg Kulikov. 
Oleg, as I would later find out, was a uh, second secretary assigned to the Russian mission to the United Nations. He sat on what uh, on the military staff committee and reported to a man named Lieutenant General Nikolai Urovov. Urovov was the senior most GRU officer in the United States. And Oleg, uh, true to form, was like his predecessors, was a very good intelligence officer. When you were assigned to the United States, they do that because you're very good at what you do. He was tough. And that played out very clearly in the first time I met him. I was sitting in the office and Oleg walked in wearing sort of this not so great sort of dull suit. And my father walked up to him and the relationship and the the protocol was he would give him the books that Oleg had ordered before and then receive the new order and they would take cash. And so that exchange happened and my father went and introduced me to Oleg and Oleg looked very, very <laughs> concerned. He was not expecting me to be there. And my father said, you know, this is my son. He's, you know, he's interested in the military and tried to play it off a little bit and having no idea what to do, I turned to humor and thought that it would be funny and perhaps an icebreaker to tell Oleg a joke. And I told him this joke about uh, two men standing on line for borscht right after Glasnost. And they're complaining about how things are supposed to be better now and why are they standing on line for just basic essentials. And one man says to the other, um, will you hold my spot in line? I'm going to go shoot Gorbachev. And hours later, he returns and the other man says, Oh, did you shoot Gorbachev? And he said, and his response is, no, there was a line for that too. And there's, that's the punchline. And, you know, people, normal people laugh. And I looked at Oleg and Oleg looked at me like mortified. And he said, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. And with that, he hustled off. I learned later that for the Russians, they, they believe that they're being taped and recorded all the time. And he probably thought that it was a setup to make him speak ill of the Russian government and to do so would perhaps make him compromisable. And so that was not a good approach. But that initial foray with comedy um, made me realize there's the, you know there need to be a larger plan. And then the curious thing that happened is the Russians here started showing up several weeks after and the, they kept coming back. And so they seemed really curious to talk to me. And that's when I realized that there was an interest here. Um, that I needed a bigger plan than just, you know, flying by the seat of my pants. The thing that kicked the relationship off into high gear was not this masterful plan, but a level of frustration that said to me, look, Oleg, you've got to stop coming to the office. I have other people that work here. This is sort of a weird thing. I don't want to have to explain to people who you are. And... You know, we had five or six other people that worked in the office. And it was just a, they were at, you know, it was a curious thing because we didn't get walk-ins. And true to form, Oleg offered to get coffee. And that small, simple gesture of now meeting outside of the office and moving to sort of a clandestine meeting where we could talk more freely was sort of the opening foray into us trying to suss each other out, him trying to identify if I was someone they wanted to recruit and me trying to figure out what the Russians in fact wanted. So a lot of this was me trying to figure out what to get him. But one of the first things that we, me and the FBI gave him was conference proceedings. And not just the conference proceedings that were available to the public, but we actually got him the PowerPoint by the presenters for a military conference 
And that was the first thing that sort of showed the Russians that A, I had access, but more importantly, B, a willingness to sort of push the envelope. And the purpose here was honestly to collect, have me collect intelligence at this point, although they were happy to take the stuff that I gave them. It was really to assess me. I mean, I was going to be, if things worked out for them, a long-term spy. I mean, they understood that I was applying to the military. I was going to be an intelligence officer. And they understood that, you know, you get someone now, you groom them. And once they're, start them off early. And once you get to a certain point, you have a long-term, really, account that can pay dividends over decades. You know, when it came to dealing with the Russians, I assumed just like the FBI, they could do background checks or open source research on me. They could find out where I live. They could find out where I went to school. You know, these are things that are all discoverable. But the thing that they can't figure out, what Oleg didn't know, is who I was as a person, what my motivation was. You have to have an answer as to why are you willing to spy on your country? Uh, you know, so a lot of my time was spent reading books and trying to figure out, understand the world of espionage. There's no training for this. There's no manual for me as a, as a civilian. And I came across this acronym called MICE. And MICE stands for Money, Ideology, Coercion, Ego. And those are understood to be the four pillars that motivate people to spy on their country. And looking at those, well, I said ideology. I, I'm not an ideologue. I don't, uh, you know, it's not something I prescribe to. And, and coercion, Oleg, while these were interrogations, he wasn't coercing me. So it really came down to the other two, money and ego. And, you know, I decided that the best way to approach Oleg was to say, look, I'm doing this for the money and I'm smarter than the FBI. I can't get caught. So this is what I'm about. And what that lent itself to is when Oleg would try to ask me questions about religion or my wife or things like that, I would just tell him to basically go fuck himself and that I'm here because I want to make a buck. And you know, if he's not interested in doing that, then stop wasting my fucking time. And that played perfectly to the Russians. They saw me as this young, brash, sort of arrogant young man who was driven by money, who was the son of two immigrants, probably didn't have a huge allegiance to the United States because back in Russia, if you're not, if you're an immigrant, you know, you're not viewed as a true Russian. And they felt that that was someone who could be co-opted, who could be, you know, lured by money. Oleg would give me money and he, of course, would give me cash. And, you know, dealing with the Russians, one of the most difficult questions is, what do you charge? I, mean, I can't go to Indeed and see what other other spies are charging, what the rate is and, and market for geography or location. I sort of figured that they had money, but if you ask for too much, they just won't be able to do it. So it's not worth it to them. And if you ask for too little, They'll start to ask questions because I'm there about money. I'm doing this for nothing. That doesn't seem right. So in the end, it was somewhere north of $100,000 over three years that I collected. I would take the cash from Oleg and I would meet the FBI right after I met with Oleg. I would drive right there to meet with him. And um, I would give them this money and they would take the cash. And then a few days later, they would meet with me and return the same amount of money in cash to me. So essentially what the FBI was doing was laundering the money because as a US citizen, I can't accept, one can't accept cash from a foreign agent. And I'm happy to say that Oleg, in fact, and the Russians were funding this operation against them. We were completely cost recoverable. 
You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. I'm Margot Martindale. We turn back to the story of Navid Jamali, the bookseller who helped expose a Russian spy. So much of dealing with Oleg was about trying to keep him engaged, trying to make sure that there was information, you know, that would justify him coming back. And part of this idea that I had was, again, we're running books and research, we're doing, we're moving into sort of technical data projects. And one of those was digitization of documents. And so I convinced Oleg that, you know, I was going to have a big digitization project and we would have access to things that were of interest to Oleg. And so we discussed it with the FBI and, and I said, you know, what do you think we can get? What, do you, what should we do? And they must have gone back on their own. And they said, uh, essentially, why don't we go up to Northrop Grumman, which is in Bethpage, in Long Island, not far from where I was. And we've arranged it. And you can get a tour and you can talk to some of the archivists and see what documents you, know, you could borrow. So this was a complete fictitious project. There was no digitization project, but they drove me out to Bethpage and we get to the parking lot of Northrop Grumman and they say to me, you know, go, go ahead. They're expecting you and uh, go have a conversation and see what you can get. I said, okay. And I said, are you guys coming with me? I said, no, 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 we're going to wait in the parking lot. And I, you know, thought that was curious. And now I realize that if something had gone wrong, they probably would not have been staying in the parking lot if, if something bad happened. And I innocently walked in there and, and started talking to some of the Northrop Grumman employees who had sort of been expecting me but didn't know what it was for. And I explained I was doing a digitization project. And I was able to get what's known as NATOPS manuals, which are basically naval operation manuals for the pilots who fly a particular aircraft. And I got it for the, the E-2 Greyhound, which is an early warning aircraft that the Navy flies, still flies today, and uh, now retired F-14 from Top Gun fame. I got these two giant manuals and I walked off with them and with a promise to return them. And what I told Oleg was I'll have these manuals and it will just be a way of showing him what I'm willing to do. And that became the sort of moment of showing him this stuff and giving him the files and giving him a thumb drive with the manuals on them. And again, it was just this sort of building of the relationship. And it just shows the, the amount of time we spent for what was a 45-minute conversation with Oleg. This took weeks and, and, you know, tens if not hundreds of hours to get to that point. Almost all of our communication was in person. Oleg was not the least bit interested in communicating over email, was not interested in communicating over the phone. Randomly, out of the blue, he would call me the day of and said, we're going to meet. And the idea is that we'd pre-decide where we are going to meet so he wouldn't even say the location. But beyond that, that short phone call, every piece of communication with Oleg was done in person. They would choose locations where, as I found out later, Oleg was actually going shopping with his family. And then he would quickly leave. So they were in a department store. He would find a way out and would instead meet with me at a restaurant. So he had a very small window to meet with me. So as a result, they were choosing restaurants that were close to malls. What that meant is we ate a lot of <laughs> crappy chain restaurants, Pizzeria Uno's. And then, oddly enough, one of the places we kept going back to was Hooters. 
You've never lived if you haven't been conducting a national security operation at Hooters over chicken wings. One of the challenges as you do this for a year, and then two years, and you're rolling to three years, is that while the Russians were assessing me and the end goal was to recruit me, not just to get information from me, you know, I was a long-term asset, you still have to dangle stuff. You still have to keep sweetening the pot. And so that became a challenge. What do you, you know, go from fighter manuals to what comes next? And again, talking to the FBI, their only direction was, well, Naveed, if you were a real spy, what would you do? And this was really like a startup. I was sitting here with these FBI agents in coffee houses trying to discover a way to disrupt you know, the traditional ways of doing things. And I noticed that a lot of the documents they were asking for, the only commonality that I could find was that a lot of them were these sort of government reports that showed up on this database called DTIC. DTIC was this DOD defense uh, database whereby if you receive a federal grant for research, you have to make your research available to everyone. And I eventually got access and went through training to use this database, all to show Oleg that I'd access the system. And this was months in the working. We planned this out. I, I was printing him out screenshots and manuals of DTIC to give to him. He was very excited. And we had reached this point where I was going to show him DTIC live. So I brought a, my laptop and I brought my wireless connector so we could meet in a parking lot and I could show him DTIC. And so we're sitting in the car and I'm showing him all this stuff and he's we're browsing and I'm showing him what I can retrieve. And look, I can search for this weapon system. I can look at all the, the hundreds of documents that show up. And you know, he's very excited. And I happened to be browsing and I have no idea why I got there or how I got there, but there was one document that I opened up to sort of show him as an example. And that document was on something that was completely benign. It was on this document on linguistics. And I'm just, I have the document open, the PDF open. I'm sort of showing him and we're talking. And he says, um, can I have a copy of that? I prepared for this. And my preparation was to say, I can't. I don't have any way of printing it. I don't have any way of emailing it. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And he paused and he sort of thought about it. He said, huh, I have an idea. And he reached inside his pocket and he took out the thumb drive that I had given him with the F-14 NATOPS manuals on it and said, can you copy that file onto this thumb drive? I had a split second decision to make whether I should just say yes or no. And, you know, I went back to what the FBI always told me, which was, if you're a real spy, what would you do? And I figured if I was a real spy, I'd give it to him. And this is a way of solidifying that this is real put the thumb drive into my computer, copied the file onto the thumb drive, took it out, gave it to him. What ended up happening to me as a result of this was at one point the FBI was discussing whether I should be arrested for disclosing a file to a foreign intelligence agency without prior approval, to canceling the operation, to a whole host of things. I went from being the golden boy of the FBI to suddenly now under the microscope of whether I was legitimately facing criminal charges, had I broken the law by doing this. It was a very sort of 
probably one of the darkest moments for me in the entire operation. They gave me a voluntary consent to search my laptop because I'd inserted a thumb drive in the leg. The whole thing just kind of spiraled. In the FBI's mind, this was an operation that couldn't be controlled, and it was now time to shut it down because they felt that the risk outweighed the reward. And so that is actually what happened. And this was the beginning of the end, um, that split-second decision that I made to give him the file as opposed to, to not giving it to him. So like all diplomats or, or military officers, Oleg's posting to the United States had a shelf life. He was here for a couple of years, and his time in the U.S. was going to come to an end. Uh, counterintelligence operations don't lead to arrests, especially when the target is a diplomat. They physically can't. So Oleg had diplomatic immunity, but the FBI, uh, true to form, and, and the team that I worked for felt that even though command was not happy with what happened with DTIC, that there was still a way to eke out a win. And in that case, that win for them was going to be to let Oleg know that his operation had been compromised. And they believed by letting Oleg know that his operation had been compromised, they in fact could let the GRU know they've been compromised. And if the GRU believed they've been compromised, they would have to figure out where that compromise happened, what else was compromised. And in short, that stand down that would result from this would actually have an impact in Russian collection beyond just my operation. And that really boiled down to one thing. The, the FBI decided that they wanted to fake arrest me in my last meeting with Oleg. <laughs> so Wayne, New Jersey on a Sunday, we had planned out to meet with uh, the Russians and to Oleg. And he had chosen Pizzeria Uno's. And while I sat there, walked to the restaurant to meet him, as I was meeting him at the door, he said, let's go somewhere else. And of course, somewhere else was Hooters. So we went to Hooters and um, I knew that uh, this was my last meeting um, and he was telling me all these great things about how he's going to take care of me and how important I'm going to be and how grateful they are and again the retirement account and this party with lobsters and champagne and just all these things. My goal was to get him to my car which was parked in a parking lot and at the car I was supposed to take my hat off and when I took my hat off the FBI was going to swarm from all directions and confront both of us. Now, mind you, this is a major busy parking lot and on a Sunday and, you know, this was sure to draw a crowd. I was positive of that. But I also knew another thing, which is to get Oleg to the car, I had to give him something. And I convinced him that I had more documents to give him, even though I had nothing else to give him. So in the back of my car, I had the old Natops manuals in a box. And I said, why don't we walk to the back of the car and, you know, I'll, I'll show you. You can take a look at what you have and I'm excited. And I tell him I have, you know, some more stuff. And can I have, uh, you know, if he has any more money and he reaches in, takes out a huge envelope of $15,000 and gives it to me. And then we walk to the car and I open the trunk and back away and take my hat off. And out of nowhere, several Ford Fusions come screaming around the corner and the FBI agents grab me and say, what are you doing? And so oh, I'm nothing, nothing. Who is this? And I, they start patting me down and like a, like a real rest. And they quickly kind of shuttle me into the back of a car. And I watch Oleg and the man who had just told me how important I was to Russia and how important I was to him, turned his back, walked away from me and never looked back. And as we rounded the corner, both the FBI agents who I'd never seen before in my life, turned around and started high-fiving me and shaking my hands. And, you know, you know, congratulations. We ended up driving to a, a parking structure 
where there's more FBI agents. So I went from a world where I just dealt with two FBI agents to suddenly there's command and control and there's surveillance and there's all sorts of stuff happening. And that was how it ended for me. Oleg, uh, from what I understand, went straight to the consulate, was put on the first Aeroflot flight back to Russia. And I suspect he had several tough months ahead of him when he landed in Russia to sort of figure out what happened. So I ended up uh, going from being a double agent to actually getting a commission in the United States Navy as an intelligence officer, uh, uh, tours with various agencies within, uh, within the Navy. And I got a letter of accommodation from someone that we may have heard of named Bob Mueller. The team that I worked for was awarded a National Intelligence Medal in large part for this operation. Uh, it was made public and the Director of National Intelligence actually presented the team with that medal in person. My world was Oleg and the two FBI agents. I had no idea the context, the importance, or what it meant. Uh, over the years, I started to understand the importance of the operation, the uniqueness of it, that these are things that never happen. The FBI doesn't use uh, civilians to do this, and they don't do it for three years, and they certainly don't get successful doing it. I spent a lot of my time, and I spend a lot of my time now, devoted to trying to make the public and legislators aware of the threat that that Russia poses and try to do so in a nonpartisan way. Naveed Jamali is a commentator on national security issues. He describes his experience as an FBI informant in the book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Jamali was conducted by Elias Grohl. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up to get bonus episodes in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispy. If you're not a subscriber, you can get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. Next week on the podcast, Mubin Sheikh goes undercover to root out Muslim extremists in Canada. One of the guys was studying uh, aviation and, uh, you know, kind of thought that he could fly a plane into the nuclear power station. But this was one of the main targets, the Pickering Power Station. And others included military bases, the CSIS building, which is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Those were on the initial list, if you will. That's next week on iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale.